0: well it 's good to see everybody this morning. Uh, we are continuing our look at the, the book of Colossians, and uh, today we 're going to finish up chapter three and we 're going to actually creep into uh, chapter four, just going to look at one verse into chapter four and we 're going to be talking today about the fact that that your greatest ministry is at home. Now, what do I mean by that? Your greatest ministry is at home well we 're going to see a lot of things about home life and Some things related to that in this portion of Scripture. So if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to pick up at verse 18. So we finished at verse 17 last week. We're going to pick up at verse 18 this week. And I'm going to read down to uh, verse 1 of chapter 4. But this is what it says. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. "'Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward.'" you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to come together this morning and look at your word together. We're just so grateful for the fact that that you give us access to your word, and you give us an opportunity like this for us as, as believers to be able to worship you and to be able to come together, enjoying what feels like a weekly family reunion. And so, Lord, we're grateful for the people that you have brought into our lives through your church, and that you allow us to, to have that kind of fellowship and that kind of friendship and that, that family that family atmosphere together, Lord. We're just so grateful for it all. Lord, we pray that as we look at your word together today, that you'd help us to understand that that you have a desire for us in regard to how we operate in our households, and there's a mission that you've given to each, each of us, and when we look at a passage like this, you outline it with a lot of detail and with a lot of specificity, and so, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to understand what our role is and what you desire for us and that we would honor you in it. And take the opportunity that you've given to us as as participants and leaders in our households to ultimately glorify your name. So, Lord, thank you for your word and for the privilege that it is to be able to look at it together today. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, most weeks I call my father several times. Uh, I've just over the years just gotten in the habit of doing that. And in fact, the, the calls aren't usually about anything important. They're not usually earth-shattering or about anything critical. We usually just chat for a few minutes and catch up, and in fact, I have an eight-minute drive from the church here, from my office here at the church to my house, and I've actually gotten into a pattern of, I think, all right, I've got eight minutes, so what am I going to do? I'm not going to put on a podcast in those eight minutes. I could, I guess, listen to two songs if I want to, but I've actually started using that as kind of a... a a thought like, call a family member. And it's usually my dad that I call on those drives from the church back to my house. And so that eight to 10 minutes uh, back home, I, I just catch up with my dad and um, and we'll, we'll talk. And usually at one point in the midst of those calls, he will ask me how my children are doing. That's one of his main questions. Hey, how are the kids doing? And then he either celebrates whatever they're succeeding at, or he joins me in whatever concern we're currently dealing with in relation to one of their lives. And I know many of you, this'll be the understatement of the year, but I know many of you can already identify with this, but raising children changes a person, right? Understatement of the year. Raising children, it changes a person. When you try and raise children, that will change you. You see your life differently when you become responsible for the lives of other people. In in many respects, you kind of spend much of your life at that point, Not really thinking about yourself as much as you're thinking about them. And in fact, recently, one of the things that my dad said to me when we were chatting, he said, you know, it took me a while to grow up, son. (laughs) He said, it took me a while to grow up, but I'll tell you, there are two things in my life, two experiences in my life that actually helped me get there, that helped me mature. And I said, all right, what was it? And he said, all right, the first one was joining the Navy. That helped a lot. (laughs) And, uh, And then he said, the second one was having kids. Said those two things, that's what really kind of pushed me over the edge to to really grow up in areas that I was kind of resisting. And uh, again, one of the most difficult yet rewarding things that many of us will ever do is raise children, but that's only part of what takes place in our households during the course of any given week. There are three other relationships that are directly impacting the culture of our homes in addition to our relationship with our children. Our relationship with our spouse impacts the culture of our home. Our relationships at work also impact the culture of our home. And our relationship, most importantly, with the Lord will certainly impact the culture of our home. And I'm convinced that the greatest ministry that the Lord gives to us is our family. Greatest ministry the Lord gives to you, greatest ministry the Lord gives to me, It's our family. So what does it look like to step back and observe the full picture of every relationship and every circumstance that might be impacting the culture of our homes. Now, I just read from Colossians 3 and a little bit into chapter 4. And in this portion of Scripture, it gives us a great picture of what it looks like to be a blessing to our families. It also gives us a great picture of what it looks like to be a blessing to others that we interact with as well, particularly those that that we may be interacting with on a daily basis. And if you remember, just from background of the the past couple books we've been looking at together, Paul, the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Colossians right around the same time that he wrote the book of Ephesians. So as I read the portion of Scripture that I just read, having 6 months ago read a very similar portion of scripture when we were studying Ephesians did it strike your ear as wait a second didn't didn't we already cover this isn't this something that we already addressed when you look at Ephesians chapter 5 and Ephesians chapter 6 you see a lengthier discussion of these very topics that Paul brings up briefly here in the book of Colossians and so if we put these This information or this counsel that he gives to us in these places, Ephesians 5, Ephesians 6, Colossians 3, into Colossians 4, if we put these things into practice, I am convinced that we will absolutely be glad that we did. But I also don't think that anything that he says here is particularly easy. Whatever role you have in what he said here, I don't think any of it is easy if we actually attempt to put it into practice. But I do think it's all good. And one of the things that he starts off with here, and I'll kind of summarize it this way, I believe he's talking about this idea of protecting the culture of our homes. Protect the culture of your home. Well, how do we protect the culture of our home? Let me reread verses 18 and 19, because here he's talking to to wives and husbands, and he says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Then he says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Recently read a quote by uh, the great evangelist D.L. Moody. Are you familiar with Moody? He has a pretty, pretty powerful legacy that really uh, continues to ring into the, into the present day. And I came across a quote that he shared, obviously, you know, 100-plus years ago, and it really resonated with me. He was quoted as saying, if a man doesn't treat his wife right, I don't want to hear him talk about Christianity. So just think about that statement again. If a man doesn't treat his wife right, I don't want to hear him talk about Christianity. And when I read that, I thought, I love that. I love that. I love that quote. I couldn't agree more. In many ways, I'm convinced that in a personal way that the authenticity of my personal faith is going to be demonstrated in how I treat my wife. I think you would have great reason to question whether or not I take my faith very seriously if I can't even treat my wife with respect. And so I like the fact that D.L. Moody, someone that the Lord gave great influence in his generation, someone that, that none of us met, and yet here we are referencing his name, that he, he had a, a firm conv- conviction that if a man does not treat his wife right, he said, I don't want to hear him talk about Christianity. It's like, start treating your wife right, and then I'll, I'll actually listen to what you have to say. And something that I've been thinking about a lot lately, I've, th- I've thought about it for a while, but in recent years I've been thinking about it a little bit more. Just how. I have the capacity to impact my wife's quality of life. Now I think about that a lot. Andrea and I we both we started dating when we were teenagers. I was 18 she was 19 so I mean she robbed the cradle you know but don't (laughs) hold that against her right. We were teenagers when we started dating Um, and you know it's interesting we didn't feel young at the time but It's been interesting to kind of observe the course of our life since that time. It's been fun to essentially grow up together. That's what we've done. We've grown up together, right? And I feel a strong sense of responsibility for how her life goes. Her parents took very good care of her when she was growing up, and then they gave me their blessing to marry her. And when they did that, they were saying, all right, we are entrusting our daughter over to you. We have taken good care of her up to this point, and the next chapter's... Of her life are going to be directly impacted by the way you treat her and the decisions that you made. Now they didn't say that directly, but I can see in her dad's eyes that that's what he meant when he said, "Yes, you can marry my daughter." <laughs> Andrea and I are two people that take the Bible at, at its word. What it says, you know, we don't we don't look at the Bible and say, you know, that that part seems like. Uh, out of style. That seems out of fashion. Or that might have been good in Paul's day, but I don't think that's good in our day. We're the type of people that take the Bible seriously. We take the Bible at its word. We don't try and explain away passages that, that uh, uh, maybe don't seem as culturally favored, or we don't try to soften the sting of passages that might challenge our present-day sensibilities. So when a passage like this says, you know, if we could say it in a personal way, if it says, all right, Andrea, submit to John's leadership in your home. She's willing to honor what it says, particularly because she knows what it actually means. It doesn't mean being treated like a doormat to be walked all over. And sometimes I think when people look at this passage, they mistakenly look at it, and that's kind of what they have in mind because they've interacted with some people that treat other people like doormats. And maybe they've even seen some men treat their wives like doormats. And when you look at the context in which this is shared, and the, and the person that's sharing it, and the fact that it's part of our New Testament, it's not talking about this idea of being treated like a doormat. It's actually, it, what it actually means is this idea of supporting a loving leader who desires to serve you. That's what it means when it's talking about this idea of biblical submission. It's talking about supporting a loving leader who desires to serve you. And Andrea knows that I'm trying to do my best to take my, my role in this passage seriously. And she takes her seriously as well. And through Paul's words here, you have the Holy Spirit telling me, John, don't be harsh with your wife. Don't be harsh with your wife. I'm told to love her, especially when you look at this passage combined with Ephesians 5 and Ephesians 6. I'm told to love her with the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. And Andrea has seen that I genuinely mean that. So we've been together long enough that she knows that this passage is not something that I take lightly. She knows that I don't take lightly what it shares in Ephesians 5 as well. I've been tested, and she's willing to trust me, but to her credit, I'm grateful that I'm able to say that even before I was tested, over the course of several decades now that we've been together, she gave me the benefit of the doubt because she knew that I trusted in Jesus, and she knew that it was my desire to lead, not boss around. There's a big difference between leading and bossing. And I want to lead like Christ. I want to lead in a way that that Christ would lead. I want to lead in a way that's genuine and heartfelt. And as believers in Christ, we should protect the culture of our homes. And you have a role in your home that's going to set part of the tone. You can't control what anyone else does. You can't control what your spouse does. Only thing you can control is what you do as you submit yourself over to the Holy Spirit. So I don't even know that we should necessarily be hyper-focused on what somebody else's role is when we look at a portion of Scripture like this. I look at it and I say, all right, I'm going to focus on my role in the midst of this. And I'm going to do my best to protect the culture of our home. And the idea is that we're, we're to live with the desire to place the need of somebody else over our own. So we should honor our spouses. We should treat them like a gift from God because that's exactly what they are. And he's entrusted many aspects of their quality of life over to us. So wives, please make your husband's life great as best as you can. And husbands, please make sure that your wife is able to say every day just how glad she is to have married you. As Jesus has sacrificially graced us with his love, love and sacrifice for one another as well. Now there are sacrifices that Over the course of the decades, I've made for Andrea's well-being, or simply to just honor her preferences, that she thanks me for regularly. She brings some of these things up, even though some of these sacrifices were made many years ago, and she still brings them up like they happen today. So these are things that are in her mind and in her heart, that because it blessed her at a particular season, she brings it up like it's fresh. And I I frequently thank her, including just the other day, for never stomping on or discouraging my dreams. And that might sound small, and it's not. One of the things that, that I joke with her about is the fact I call her an enabler in a healthy sense because every project I've ever taken on or every major step of faith I've ever committed myself to, she has supported, including back in 2008 when I said to her, I said, I can't shake the thought that the Lord is calling us to just uproot our family and move to Langhorn and serve there. I said, like, I know it's going to move us away from family. I know it's going to uproot everything. I can't shake the thought that we're supposed to do that. That's a pretty disruptive decision, right? But it was a step of faith that I felt convinced in my heart the Lord wanted us to take, and her response was, I'm with you, 100%. Every single thing, every dream, every step of faith that the Lord's impressed upon my heart all along the course of the decade, she's always supported and it makes a difference. And it, it makes a, a particular difference. And, and those of you that serve in any role of leadership or anything that puts you in a visible place, in, you know, with, with uh, where maybe you're kind of in a, in a public position, you'll kind of identify with this because there are always people in my life. The entire, we got married one month before I became a pastor. So the entirety of our marriage, I have been serving in pastoral ministry, and I'll tell you a little secret about pastoral ministry, that you realize just how real this is once you actually get involved in it. There are always people in my life who harshly critique me. It comes with the territory, right? I'm not saying that to whine. Sometimes I feel like whining. I don't feel like whining today. I'm just saying that as a statement of fact. But there are people that use their words as weapons against me. Right? I've seen that through the decades, I've seen that through the past 25 years, but you know what I'm grateful for? She's never one of them. She never uses her words as a weapon against me. She is not a harsh critic. And as a result, we both win, and so does our marriage. And I think it helps protect the culture of our home. And it's not to say that we've gotten everything right, we definitely haven't. And in fact, I'm really glad that there are no recordings that exist of our first year of marriage, because we actually argued a lot that year, and then by our second year, we were like, man, we argued a lot last year. And then you come to discover that, that sociologically, one of the most argumentative years, many people say in their marriage is their first years, they try and blend two lives together. And I, I realized like, okay, like, oh yeah, we, we definitely fit that pattern. So I think we got much of that out of our system, but it still creeps up now and then. She doesn't like the way I turn into our neighborhood. She says, I take that corner too fast. She's downstairs right now. I think you all know she's wrong in that assessment. But I try not to be uh, harsh in my response and she tries not to be critical. All kidding aside, uh, the culture of our home is highly blessed because I feel like we have the opportunity to operate as a team. And if you can, they always say, you know, a a good marriage is made up of two good forgivers. Do You ever hear that said? Like, neither of us get it all right, but we kind of treat each other like we are. Do You know what I mean by that? Like, we goof up a whole bunch of things but then the goal is, like it says in 1 Corinthians 13, love keeps no record of wrongs. Just, just make it a list that you forget. Don't write it down. Don't try and win arguments. You know, that was, that was a real, I'm gonna, I'm veering from my notes here, but can I just tell you one more thing? Um, when we were, early, that first year of marriage, like I wanted to win every argument. I wanted to win. Like I think in the back of my mind, I wanted to be a lawyer. I didn't want to be a pastor. I want to be a lawyer. I wanted to win every argument. She's an oldest child. I'm an oldest child. We just wanted to win. And we would go toe-to-toe, and uh, whoever could remember the most supporting details, you'd be like, aha, I won this one. She's better at remembering the supporting details than I am. And I'm like, oh, wait, I won this one. And I'm like, yes. And you know what you realize? If you win too many of those, your marriage loses. So I remember getting to a spot where I was like, "Um, can I just stop caring about winning arguments, and maybe we could just work toward reconciliation instead of beating the other person down verbally? But that was a process we had to learn, and I look at this, and the things that Scripture tells us to do, it doesn't tell us to do these things because they're easy or because we would already be thinking to do them. They're countercultural things that the Scripture is telling us to do, and it's counter to our old nature. Our new nature wants to do this, our old nature definitely doesn't. But because we have the power of Christ, because Christ lives within us, his spirit lives within us, we're empowered to actually honor our spouses and protect the culture of our home. And then that segues into how you treat your children. And can I suggest something? When it comes to children, as you're working with your kids, as you're trying to bless your children, as you're trying to help them in so many ways, inspire your children to thrive in accordance with, with what's shared here. Look at what it says in verses 20 and 21. It says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Think back to your childhood for a second. So, as an adult, have you ever thought back to your childhood and wished that you could have done a few things differently? All of us do, right? Right? Can, you, can you remember a time when maybe you ignored your parents' counsel and you, you, you paid a painful price for doing so? Uh, did you ever give them attitude when they were trying to guide your young life? Not you guys. I did. I have to confess I did, but not you guys, right? Uh, do you ever speak to them in a disrespectful way and wish that you could take some of those words back? Because we're born with a sin nature, this is something that we all struggle with. You struggled with it. Your parents also struggled with it. Your children are presently struggling with it. We all have a habit of thinking that we know everything until our brains finish developing and our faith just finally matures. And so let me just say this. If you're a child, take this counsel, this counsel that's given to us here in the Word of God, and obey your parents in everything. Don't spend your life questioning every single of advice that your parents are giving you. They're actually giving you good advice. They are one generation ahead of you. They've seen everything you're going through or some version of it. Just listen to your counsel or the counsel that they're giving you because God gave those parents to you and he didn't make a mistake when he gave them to you. They are responsible to him for your life. And he's greatly pleased when you're willing to obey the parents that he allowed you to be born to. And when you become a parent, or for those of you who already are parents or grandparents, help your children to thrive. I was recently asked by a father of three young children. He asked me this just a few months ago. He said, what advice would you give to me? as a young father. And and, uh, on the spot, I was thinking, how would I phrase this? And with enough time, I thought, all right, if I ever get asked that question again, this is how I want to answer it. Because I think the best advice that I could give a young father is to make sure your children see a strong representation of Christ in the way that you love them, and in the way that you instruct them, in the way you discipline them, and in the way you inspire them. I think fathers and mothers, These are things that the Lord is giving us the opportunity to do. He's giving us the opportunity to love and instruct and discipline and inspire the children that he entrusts to us. And I have to say, as a dad, there's nothing I want to see more in this world than my children having a strong relationship with Jesus Christ and a life that thrives as a result. And if everything I've ever built and everything I've ever dedicated myself to crumbles, but that one thing survives, I will go to my grave a happy man. But instead of inspiring children, what do we quickly learn the moment we become a parent? Or some of you I know aren't parents, but you work with kids all the time, and so you probably see this a lot too. It could be very easy to provoke and discourage them. And that's what Paul's cautioning us against here. And I don't know know that we always realize in the moment that we might, might be doing that. I don't think that that's something that we always think about in the moment because sometimes it takes time to realize it because usually when you're in the, in the midst of raising children and, you know, in, in our household, we had four kids and they're all close together in age. And so you're not always thinking about the individual. You're just trying to maintain the level of chaos so that it doesn't get like, like super bad, right? And what happens? You get tired and you lose patience, and there are times over the course of my parenting years here that I have said things either a little too tersely or whatever because I just felt like I was exhausted. And I had to, I was trying to inspire quick action from somebody. And then you realize later, when you have time to think about what you said, you're like, I think I just crushed my my child's spirit in saying it that way. And there have been plenty of times along the way. I don't think that that every parent needs to spend your entire parenting experience apologizing for every last thing, but I do think that it's wise that if you notice in a moment like that, that that you've been too abrasive and too abrupt, don't wait a long time to display some humility and just say, you know what, if I, if I was being more patient, if I wasn't feeling tired in that moment, this is how I should have said that, so I apologize. And that's one of the things that I, I, over the years, I thought, you know what, it does not diminish your ability to lead if you're someone that learns how to apologize with humility. It does not diminish your ability to lead And, um, you know, I look at this here, and I think, all right, we need to offer our children our loving guidance in such a way that we don't crush their spirit, and we need to remain patient with them in a way that reflects the fact that God has remained patient with us. There are some lessons that God has been attempting to teach us that have taken a very long time for us to grasp. And there are certain things that we're just now in the process of grasping. Some we're just scratching the surface of understanding. And yet he continues to work in our hearts. And he continues to point us in the right direction. And he doesn't crush our spirit in the process of teaching us. He's guiding us. He displays patience toward us. He's graciously teaching us to see things the way that he sees things. And for most of us, it takes actually more than a lifetime to learn those lessons. We're really learning those lessons all throughout the course of our earthly lives. So if the Lord entrusts you with children, or if he ever places you in a position of leadership or influence over children, let the example of your life, your demeanor, your words, all of these things, be the type of things that they can point to decades from now as some of the greatest influences that help them understand more about the nature and the heart and the life of Jesus Christ. They will see that in the ways in which you lead them inspire them to thrive in their walk with Christ. Something else that Paul brings out in this portion of Scripture that certainly has an impact on our households, and that's our work, the nature of the work we do. So you see him talking about marriage relationships. You see him talking about children. And then he segues right into the workplace, right? And we have the opportunity to actually improve the culture of our workplace as believers in Jesus Christ. Look at what he says in verses 22 and 23. He says, bondservants, servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. All right, you didn't know there was going to be math today, but I'm going to give you a little math. Easy math, though. No, it's not hard math. There are 24 hours in a day. So every day that you and I are blessed with, we're given 24 hours in the day. The average person sleeps for eight hours. By the way, can I just ask, who here sleeps typically for eight hours? Who gets a good eight hours sleep? I envy those people. I do not, I am not a consistent sleeper and I never have been. And uh, I have two people in my household that really are, maybe three, and then the rest of us aren't. And I look at you guys and I just think, you guys are just enviable. I envy people that can sleep super well. But the average person sleeps for eight hours and is awake for 16 hours, right? We're awake 16 hours of that 24 hours. And for most people, half of your waking hours during the course of your life will be spent where you work. So just put it that way, just do the math that way. Half of your waking hours will be spent where you work, maybe for some of us even more, but that's a significant chunk of your life. It's a major, when you look at your life, if your life was like a pie chart, a major chunk of that would be spent in your workplace. And, uh, and when you consider the fact that time is a commodity that you don't get more of, right, as far as our earthly life, it, it, it's, it's not a, um, an insignificant thing to be thinking about how we're using that time. Now don't answer this out loud, but I do want you to think about this. Do you enjoy the work you do? Some of you are like, good thing you didn't ask us to answer it out loud because I have some things to say, right? Do you enjoy the work? Or how about this? Would you recommend your workplace to somebody else? I'm just looking around at faces. Some, Some of you betrayed your answer with your face. I saw in your face what you would have said. How about this? If you own or manage a business... Do people enjoy working with and for you? Uh, I know for, for five years, many of you know, prior to our family moving here, I was, well, I was pastoring a church up in Northeast PA, and at, at the same time I was pastoring there for five of those years, I also directed a, a, a summer camp and conference center. And one of the tasks that I had every year was putting together a staff of about 25 people. And I remember, I volunteered with this organization for many years, and I remember seeing years where they had a very hard time filling out that staff roster, and it was very challenging. And I I remember when I started leading there, I thought, all right, one of the ways, and it's probably one of the more significant ways that I'll be able to determine if the work culture here is good, is whether or not I'm able to fill these spots. If I can't fill these spots, I need to start asking myself questions about why don't people want to work here? And so I started wrestling with that, and one of the things that helped me to assess that the culture there was doing well was when we had to build a waiting list because we filled all the spots and then had extra, and we had several years where we had that waiting list. And to me, that was important because I wanted it to be the type of place that people would say, it's a a joy to work there. If they're going to carve out their entire summer, I wanted it to be a joy for them to be part of that. And in the era in which Paul wrote Colossians, when you look at what was happening just in the society at the time, a large percentage of the Roman population were bond servants. A very large percentage. Very large. It actually is kind of surprising when you think about it but that meant they were legally obligated to work for earthly masters. So Paul counseled these bond servants to demonstrate Christ-likeness and demonstrate integrity with their labor, even when their earthly masters weren't keeping an eye on them. And I think we do well to heed that counsel in our places of work as well. Paul also challenged those that were in in uh, any form of leadership, but here he's particularly talking about about masters. So you could say, you look at this and say, like a business owner or somebody that's employing other people in our context, but he challenged those in leadership to treat those who served them and to treat those who worked for them in a Christ-like manner, knowing that they were going to one day answer to God for how they treated them. Wouldn't it be interesting if every employer thought about the fact that they were going to one day have to answer to God for how they treated those that work with them and for them? Do you think that would impact the culture of a workplace? If that was primarily on the, every, every boss, every manager, every leader, every business owner's thinking? If they thought about the fact that they would answer to God someday for how they treat those who work with them and work for them? I think that's a great reminder for us all. So if you lead, you will answer to God. If you serve, you will answer to God. So demonstrate spirit-empowered integrity in whatever role you happen to be in because your present role is only temporary. Whatever role you're in right now, it's only temporary. But the legacy of godliness that you're leaving, it has ripples into eternity. And this is the type of thing that, that Paul was trying to encourage us to understand. And there's one other thing that I want to point out really quickly as we finish up. In the midst of all of this, you know, when you're thinking about the things that are impacting your home and the people that you have the opportunity to to spend time with and the ways in which you have the opportunity to serve people, keep your eyes on the prize. What do I mean about that? Or why am I saying it that way? Why am I saying keep your eyes on the prize? Well, look at what he says uh, when you look at verse 24 down to verse 1 of chapter 4. he He says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. So let me say that again. This is verse 24 of chapter 3. He says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. He says, "'Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven.'" So as Paul finishes this up, what is he doing? He's trying to point our hearts heavenward. He's trying to help us think about eternal things. And I think, amazingly, Scripture reveals to us in multiple places that the Lord sees the work that we're doing in His name, and He has an inheritance in heaven waiting for us. All believers in Jesus Christ will be present in heaven. Every believer in Jesus Christ will be present in heaven. But the nature of our inheritance will differ in some way. Do you ever think about that? I don't exactly know how to explain it, but Scripture clearly teaches it. Every believer will be there... But the nature of our inheritance will differ in some way. And that difference will be directly connected to our faithfulness to Christ during the course of this present age. So with that in mind, very simply, remember the ministry that the Lord has entrusted to you. If you have a spouse, bless your spouse. If you have children, inspire your children Bring Jesus into the culture of your workplace. And remember that when you're serving others, you're actually serving Jesus Christ. Keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your heart in tune with the heart of Christ in the midst of every opportunity that he gives to you to represent him to somebody else. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and for the privilege that it is to be able to look at a portion of Scripture like this and to think about the fact that you have entrusted to us a great ministry. We may not be names like D.L. Moody that, that you know, 120 years after our ministry has concluded that people are still referencing us. We, we may not be uh, well-known outside of our own household, but within our household, Lord, we pray that we would look at the ministry that you have entrusted to us and that we would joyfully invest ourselves in it. Lord, we pray that if you bless us with a spouse, that our spouse would be able to say, I'm, I'm so glad that this is the blessing that's been entrusted to me. If you bless us with kids or give us the opportunity to influence children, Lord, we know that there are going to be times when we're going to be exhausted from that task. They don't raise themselves. They need our help. They need our assistance. They need our guidance, and, and they have more energy than us. And they outnumber us. But Lord, we pray that you'd give us your patience and you'd give us your strength and you'd give us your wisdom and that you would help us to inspire them to know you and to love you and that when the day comes and they look back at, their, at, at the course of their childhood, when they're adults someday, Lord, we pray that, that they would be able to look at us and think back to the things we said or the kind actions we took toward them, or the ways in which we served them, or, or, or the instruction we gave them, or the correction we gave them. And to be able to look at it and say, thank you, Lord, that is what pointed me to you. Lord, this, I, I'm 100% convinced that this world would be drastically different if all parents looked at the, the opportunity that they've been given to influence their children and their grandchildren they look at, looked at that as an opportunity to point them toward you, Lord. If this world was doing that, th- this would be a very different experience for us. But we know, Lord, that we as believers in you are given that opportunity. We also know, Lord, that there are plenty of people in this world that live for themselves. And they're not really thinking about the next generation, they're not really thinking about children, they're not, they're not thinking about their workplace or the impact that they have on people around them, they're just thinking about themselves. And so, Lord, it's our desire to remember the counsel you've given us in a portion of Scripture like this that's really about thinking about somebody else. Whatever role we find in this portion of Scripture, it's really a think-about-someone-else role. And so, Lord, we pray that we would think about others because you demonstrated that we were on your mind, and you graciously and sacrificially served us. And we pray that that would be the example that we find inspiring and motivating as we seek to to ultimately live our lives in such a way to bring you glory. Lord, thank you so much for your presence with us, and thank you for the fact that in the midst of all the ways you've presently blessed us, and in the midst of the fact that you've given us the gift of salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ, you also remind us all throughout your Word, you pepper your Word with these, these hints toward this inheritance that we have in your kingdom. And you remind us time and time again that it has a direct correlation to our walk with you right now. And so, Lord, we pray that that we wouldn't look at these things in a flippant way. We pray that we would recognize that that the ways in which we serve others is really a way in which we're serving you. And this will have ripples into eternity. And so, Lord, we pray that we wouldn't be dismissive of it or think of it as just a small thing that you don't even notice because you do notice, and it does matter to you. And you, you delight in watching your children copy what we've first seen in you. So Lord, we pray that today would be a day we copy you. We pray that this week would be a week that we copy you. and We pray that your name would be honored and glorified in all aspects of our lives. We love you, Lord. We're grateful for your presence with us today, and we commit ourselves to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.